time that we get to gather together for encounter, we get to learn more about who you are, and we get to learn more about your world. And God, we thank you so much for Russell and what he is going to share with us about grief and loss, and how you indeed meet us in the mess. So I pray an anointing over Russell. Um, I pray that we would be so open to your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, that we would experience your healing and your compassion. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, take it away, Russell. Okay. Our next group here. Uh, you're recording. We're good to go. Okay, so I call it life and loss. Uh, loss, grieving, suffering, recovery. All kinds of ways to look at this. So uh, I'm gonna. it's going to be more from a personal lens this week. And then next week will be kind of the things that help and things I can hand out and all I can give you. And so it's just a, a process of exposing things and talking about things. Um, so to start off this morning, and before I get into more personal stuff, I want you to remember the first sense of personal loss you ever had. It's not a death, but the first sense of personal loss you can remember ever in your life. And I'm going to share one with you. So just think about that. The first time you ever had a sense of loss. My, mine involved 35 cents. And first grade, and a little, our little elementary school, and Mrs. Brown, who taught my dad, and then my brothers and me, so we're in this little first grade class, and this big event would occur, and once in a while, a person would bring in a film and show a movie. And so I had 35 cents to pay for my 20 cent lunch that day. That might have been 25 cents, and the movie cost 10 cents. And I turned in my lunch money, took the dime, put it in my wallet. I could still see myself put it in the sleeve and put it back in my pocket. And so then when the movie started, all of us who hadn't paid the dime stayed in the room and drew pictures. And I remember drawing a nighttime battle scene of a tank and a fire or whatever. And there was a little hole in the door. And I remember peeking out through the hole in the door and seeing a portion of the movie and an Indian on a horse riding and then immediately felt guilty for stealing uh, a look at the movie. And so when I went home that day, I told my mom about the movie and she said, why didn't you use the dime? But she hadn't told me I could use the dime, so I didn't. And then in my, what have been a six or seven year old mind, that sense of regret and loss over not getting to see that movie. And then for having stolen a look at it too and so that I still remember that keenly and that actually kind of loss and regret and sense stayed with me for years uh, I had, had, it took me a long time to get over my great capacity for holding on to regret um, but that was my first sense of loss and when I jump all the way to 40, 39 years later when I walked with my dad to his death in the hospital where he walked in the hospital but got an infection and then died in the hospital, and I was kind of in charge of what was happening with him, it really wasn't much of a different feeling, except that the magnitude and the importance had changed considerably. So as we talk about life and loss, uh, I say loss is loss. Uh, when a, comedian, a Christian comedian talks about how you know, when a child loses a balloon, 
and they cry. And go, it's just a balloon. What's their problem? He says, well, just imagine your wallet suddenly taking off and going up into the sky. And let's see how you respond. And you go, oh, in context, that balloon being lost is a lot like my wallet going away. Loss is loss. And we lament it and we cry over it and we scream about it. Or we don't know what to do about it. So um, I'm going to just share some thoughts this morning on a lot of things. I've got more information as usual than uh, normal. And probably this is, uh, I don't know, the place I'm at right now, my mom died on October 10th as I sat with her. And I spent 12 12 days in Virginia uh, leading up to the third day of her dying and then planning her service and doing her service and her burial and then getting back here to meeting. And so uh, I left on Tuesday morning, got in late Tuesday night, went to meetings on Wednesday morning. On Friday, I'm driving a bus with the cross-country team to Cal State Fullerton. Uh, last night, I got back at midnight on the bus from having had our conference championship, and our bus broke down, and we had to wait for the volleyball team to go later. you going to be okay? All right. Uh, wait for the volleyball team, so we came in later, and so we got in at midnight, and so things have just been rolling, and I haven't had much separation or time other than a week ago Saturday when everybody wanted volunteers in like four different things, and I just said, I'm not going to do any of them. I didn't even say no. I just didn't show up uh, to anything, and it took a little moment in there. So as I talk about these things, uh, I don't always know how it'll affect me, but I'm in a, you know, it feels like a little bit of a vulnerable place just to talk about how it feels to talk about loss, life and loss today. On my computer, I have a category called life and loss, filled with documents and things to draw from to talk about this. I have a, one that's just Alyssa uh, and the loss of Alyssa. And for those who don't know our family, in, in 2000, my dad passed away. And unfortunately, having the privilege of being on a uh, faculty member, I was going on sabbatical and offered to stay in Virginia for my mom. She said, no, go. And so that, that fall was a, a grieving time of just figuring things out. And then in 2006, uh, Alyssa, our daughter, died of a brain tumor. Uh, and a year later, Allison had breast cancer. And a year later, our house burned down in the tea fire. And then that next year and a half, I spent leading the rebuilding of our neighborhood, uh, where 41 homes were, 14 burned down, and all uh, the other 27 needed to be repaired. And it was just this building. And I came up on another sabbatical in 2011, which was the time when I let down as, and let myself grieve over things. So the things I'm sharing to you, I'm sharing as an imperfect vehicle of that, but having experienced a lot, because all of you have experienced loss as well, whether it's a, a death, which is, we can often, I think, consider our maximal loss uh, when we consider it, but even just the little losses of, um, like um, Brenda Rosentrader mentioned this morning about her uh, granddaughter's experiencing the pain and loss of who they thought were friends, giving them a hard time in a soccer game because winning matters more to whatever age, eight years old, 12, uh, middle school age, than, uh, than friendship sometimes. So I'm going to go with, uh, just give you some outtakes from this uh, little bit of a paper I have called Loss, Grieving, Suffering, Recovery. And so Samuel Butler who I don't, did not look up who Samuel Butler is, but he gets uh, credit for this quote. Life is like playing a violin solo in public and learning the instrument as one goes along. So we're not practiced at it, but we're learning it as we go along. 
And then Henry Nouwen, who's one of my favorite authors, uh, a um, Jesuit priest who died in 1996. Uh, and I, and I, every, I, every day I get his a, a devotional from the group that's keeping his story alive, keeping his uh, things alive. But he said, one of life's great questions centers not on what happens to us, but rather how we will live in and through whatever happens. And so, and uh, that uh, Romans eight twenty eight says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Which some people interpret to mean, well, God had a reason. Therefore, you shouldn't be too sad because your daughter needed to die so that something else good could happen to you. We actually interpret things that hard, which often is uh, us saying things to make us feel better versus being able to actually be helpful. So loss is a part of the human condition. It's just the ins and outs of it. Uh, yesterday, I was hopeful that both our men's and women's teams could win the conference championship in their last time in this conference ran, and it didn't happen. Matter of fact, they got spanked pretty badly. I uh, finished a good solid second, but the other team was just better, and I knew they were, but there was a chance that if the other team and we did this, which doesn't often happen, um, and, but they actually did pretty well. But it felt like a loss because it felt more weighted in many ways. So that's a loss that's unimportant in the bigger scheme of things, but at the time it feels like a big deal. You put a lot of time into it. So um, <coughs> I'll just read what I said here. Today I'm suffering a sense of loss from my job. Yesterday I felt like in a little bit of a failure, like I didn't prepare the team well enough. What did I not do? And I go through all that, and it takes me about 24 hours to come to the other side and go, well, maybe I made mistakes, but I, it wasn't my fault. They had to run the race. I'm not offering to run races anymore. <laughs> Underneath that current thing is the loss of my mom, which uh, we have lost her while her all back from dementia. So that grieving, I can go back and show journaling when I suddenly realized that things had changed. Something was going on. I didn't know what, but it was different. And so we had lost her quite a bit, but the, the thing I can hold on to, one, getting to sit with her, but that when I visited with her before she had the stroke that just led to her demise now, uh, she, didn't, she knew me, but she didn't know who I was. But she would say, I know I can trust you. I know you're a good guy. <laughs> and I called her mama. She said, you just call me mama. Uh, so those things are gone, but there was still some connection there. That I'll, and later on, you'll hear me read something about it. Um, so the task is understanding what's happening to me. And I don't fully know right now. I'm doing fine. I can say I'm fine because I've got to function and do things and there's stuff to do. But the issue is not getting to yet stop and contemplate enough. And that's coming uh, to have the time. So let me, I'm going to reach you some different words and there's a couple of things about them. So suffering. Suffering is part of this life. And, you know, with the college students, you know, I always keep telling them, life is good right now. People cook your food. They clean your dishes. You don't have to make up your bed. You don't have to go to class if you don't want to. Uh, whatever. Things are pretty good. And so trying to keep a pretty level thing. So and the enjoyment up here that the test didn't go well. I didn't run well. My friends greet me. You know, it's kind of keeping a, getting them to learn to keep a fairly level uh, way of looking at life so that the ups and downs, you can actually enjoy the joys, and it's not unchristian to do that, and you can actually suffer the losses, and it's not unchristian to do that either. 
But there's sometimes a sense that we really shouldn't do either one. To have joy or loss. We should just, God's in control, I should feel nothing, seemingly, at all, which is not true. Feelings are really dynamic. So, uh, Gerald Sitzer wrote a book, uh, well, the basic thing is where we met Daryl Sister and I actually got to meet him and Allison I got to hear him speak in chapel and then go to a, a lunch with him and a car crashed by a dunk driver. He had four children, five children in the car, his wife and his mother-in-law and he lost his wife, his mother-in-law and his youngest child. And so he was left with three children and then a lot of agony and uh, he wrote a, a book uh, about that. He said, I didn't want to write it, but I felt like I had to. And he's referenced it, but obviously he grew a lot from that. But I got to sit in with him, and I heard him in chapel. I had a class. I said, I'm not going to go to the lunch. I don't have time to do this. But when I heard him speak, I said, I have to hear him. And then when we went to the luncheon, and this is several years after those deaths, someone asked him uh, the hardest thing. And he said, my son didn't speak for two years. And you know, he cried, and it's like, this is years after. And I said, Lord, I did not come here for this, to be reminded that it's painful. But it's exactly what it was. And so it just doesn't go away. So he said, Gerald's sister wrote in his book, suffering is like that forest. It encloses, suffocates, and overwhelms us so completely that we simply cannot see beyond the suffering itself. It is demanding and unrelenting. As a friend of mine once said, quote, I don't feel pain, I am pain. It is the only reality I know right now. It is the only thing I feel. And so being able to sit in that and being allowed to sit in that for a while is really necessary. And so we have to learn to allow ourselves to do that, but also hopefully those around us will allow us to do that. I reminded, if you saw the uh, HBO series, The Pacific, which followed the Band of Brothers, uh, a young man comes home from the Pacific War and has seen awful things. And he's sitting, he's just kind of lounging and languishing at home uh, in a rural setting. And one day he's sitting under a tree and his mom comes out and says, you've got to get over this. You need to get on with your life. You need to start moving. And his dad talks to his wife and says, you don't understand what he's seen. You don't know what he's been through. You can't just demand that he forget it all. And it was a really great, she was right, and she wanted to fix it for him, but Dad had the patience to say, we can't fix it. And it's a really hard place to be. And I realized as I was looking at my notes, I had three different journals I've written in, and not extensively, but when things felt like I needed to write, and this one I called my dark time journal. And uh, Bob Winberg, who was a philosopher at Westmont, a uh, wonderful philosopher, never answered a question in his entire life. He just posed another question. Uh, it was maddening, but he was the most delightful person to be around, and he wrote a book called Faith at the Edge, a book for doubters. He said, this is not for atheists, and this is not for people just looking. This is for people who are on the edge of doubt. And that book was instrumental in what I said, restructuring my thinking about my relationship with God as he clearly acknowledged the existence of doubt and that there was a place and time for doubt in one's, li in one's life. He called it, quote, the dark night of the soul. So when God seems remote, so Bob put words to my feelings and helped break the, what I called the crust of doubt 
that had crept into my life. And so reading his book gave me a sense of how to deal with my feelings of doubt and set me on a course of forward healing. And I wrote to Bob an email. He was dying of cancer. And I wrote him a note just thanking him for his book. And I got a reply back. He said, I don't do many of these, but I needed to say that one, which is a, a nice gift to have his book and then have. And I've known him, and I have this photo in my office, but he and I and another friend got Teacher of the Year at the same time. And that's one proud picture. It's a terrible photo, actually. But it's the three of us there. And just being on the stage with him was just such a gift, and to read his book and to be gifted with that, that friendship. So one of the quotes I have is, being alone and feeling alone creates feelings of agony. And so that begs us that we need to have community. We need to have a place where we can say how we feel and say what's going on and to share uh, our hearts. Otherwise, because pain is going to follow us anyway, and then grief is going to absorb in our lives. So being alone can be such uh, a feeling of agony. Sitzer goes on to talk about loving God through suffering, and he said, the sales suggest that we often experience God's hidden will and suffering. This is going a long way. It's with a man who's lost three family members and is raising, and he said, raising three kids he didn't like all the time by himself when I'm a selfish person and I have work. He was very, very honest and vulnerable. So, Sometimes we experience God's hidden will and suffering, and a willingness to believe and love God through suffering expresses charity's highest degrees. Faith shows that we are willing to resign ourselves to the unfathomable will of God, even though we lack a clear understanding of why suffering occurs and what God wants to do through our suffering. DeSales counsels his followers to exercise disinterested love and faith as they make themselves open, available, and malleable before God. God is, and uh, I keep believe and I keep counseling and teaching that God walks with us through our life's losses. He doesn't prevent them or save them from them. It's part of our living, as we all know. So uh, he said, I leave, leave me behind, I should have, for what I can do. And that, and that even, that that's what I went through for the last uh, few hours on the bus and all this, what should I have done to make this outcome be better? What could I have done with this young man to get him to do, run better to his capability? Uh, so we got to let those go and look, what can I do? So when I see those young men tomorrow, I have to say, okay, you're going to the national championships, you're going to qualify as a team by your ranking, what can I do to help you do what you want to do there? What do you want to do and what can I do to help you? Because my lament about my disappointment, they may not be as disappointed about losing as I am. I don't know. Sometimes I go, I may have to change my perspective here. So part of what I was doing last night was grieving, which is the next thing. And Sitzer, I'm going to keep quoting Sitzer here for a bit. He calls this uh, house of cards. All of us go through periods when we feel like a house of cards. I've heard it said that human beings are the most dogged and determined of all creatures. This may be true, but in my experience, human beings are also the most fragile. Living by faith does not have the power to change difficult circumstances such as these. Life is often hard and confusing, plain and simple. 
And so in that hard and confusing time, then I had my brown journal, which is not name, it just was a brown journal. And this was on June 11th, 2009. And this would have been right kind of in the middle of the rebuilding of our neighborhood. Um, and just um, somewhere in it, we, the house burned down in November 13th or so, 2008. And then we went through all the stuff. And so somewhere in here, I picked up the job of doing that. And I was still coaching and teaching and stuff on that. And so this is what I wrote uh, in that thing. Months of fog. That's how it feels in losing the house, remembering Alyssa, dealing with people, processing insurance, working to rebuild the neighborhood, standing by a friend close to death in the hospital, remembering to coach, to recruit, to organize, to plan, staying involved with Allison and Travis, not giving up with feelings of anguish and burden. I know this is life and the time frame is not certain, but I believe the burdens will pass. No one can make it better, but I believe that God is abiding with me to not let me walk off a cliff in the fog and dark. No answers, just observations in the state of my life. And this is also a time when the place that I would go, I'd go out for coffee at different places, and it was kind of my little refuge just to go out. And so I would say, okay, God, I'm going for coffee. If you want to come along, fine. (laughs) I wasn't, God was abiding with me because I wasn't talking very much with God. It just didn't, I think I was just disappointed in God. And I didn't, my faith, I didn't lose faith, but I just, well, I still feel it. Uh, I just felt like, Lord, come on. So, um, on August 14th, uh, 2010, a year and two months later, this was my dark time journal. So overall, the cumulative pressures and feeling of isolation wore me thin emotionally. My emotional reserves and layered resilience were paper thin. I felt capable of accomplishing what I needed to do and was expected to do, but with little emotional commitment. Soldiering on seemed the only option, and I felt no real zest for life or desire to live. I simply felt a sense of duty to keep on with life and to take care of my responsibilities. I was holding on for my spring 2011 sabbatical to rest and recover and hopefully escape the sense of burden and loss. Thoughts of Alyssa were too painful to dwell upon and regrets for not having taken more time or better care of her and just memories of the painful events leading to her passing would make me wince and cringe. I did not feel that I could emotionally survive to get the break of my spring sabbatical to try and recover. So I went to my, all my bosses, the various people that I report to, and just told them where I was at. And they said, whatever you need. And I know that's not true of every job, and that's a benefit, but working at Westmont and in a Christian community, everybody said, whatever you need. And whatever reason, it just revived me. And I felt energetic to go back to coach and teach for the fall, and then to have that springtime to, uh, to recover. Um, and, uh, and then I, my next word is hope. And I have a dark time journal from Bob Winberg, and I didn't write it down, so I have no idea what that was, and I didn't look it up. So going back to Sitzer, he talks about God working out a good purpose in suffering. And he said, God is sovereign, working out a good purpose in suffering. 
Suffering makes us humble and hopeful, teaches us obedience, leads to discipline, and brings repentance. Our suffering then fits into God's providential plan. It is right for us, therefore, to trust God even in our suffering. And I, I think that's what I just did, was I just trusted God would be God through all the things where I felt insufficient or whatever was going on with me. And uh, so then encouragement. And um, it's called Mama's Note. This is something she wrote to me. She didn't write very often. We usually talked and didn't, it just, she was my mom. And so you just communicate, whatever communication was, was understood. It was rarely said. So, but she did write, said, Russell, I have <clears throat> loved you. Okay. I was born when she was 16. She got married at 15. So, <sighs> Russell, I've loved you long before I held you in my arms the first time. That love has never changed or lessened. I wish I could carry this sadness for you. as I carried your body then. I read this fine this morning to myself. <laughs> you knew and loved your Savior from your early youth. Let him hold you and feel his love now. Uh, listen to Alyssa singing joyfully to your heart now and always. Remember when Bud, my dad, said California was too far away. Let him hug Alyssa for you now. And I, in return, will hold you close from my heart in prayer and love. Sometimes it's just enough. And Denny wrote me uh, good things, too, which I, I'll summarize more. But uh, Denny came alongside really well during all this, as did our family group and the church. I mean, the, the support was immense. And uh, uh, I don't know what it would have been like without all of that we went through. Uh, and the thanks for Alyssa and for the house and being taken care of. And um, so anyway, he suggested that uh, talking or writing puts words to our emotions, which moves these overwhelming feelings from our right side of our brain to the left side of our brain. And it gives us categories for dealing with them. And this lessens the emotions and gives us healing. It's a, base, it's a basic tenet of post-traumatic stress treatment. Having said that, the emotions were and are important. And that's what I think a lot of times in, uh, in our Christian community, and not necessarily us, but just in the, is that we don't allow people to have the emotions. I always think of, uh, if you all saw Gone with the Wind, and, um, and just, there's moments in there that are very poignant, but the one I always remember is that when she was caught in her adulterous moment of hugging another man, uh, and that uh, Brett Butler dressed up his wife in a red dress and then took her to the party and then said, you're on your own, baby, and sent her in. And I remember, uh, do you all remember that scene? I don't know if you do, but she's going to the social thing. So this is a big deal in 18-whatever, 100 South, where pro pro propriety and all that stuff's important. He sends her in, and she's like, you can see her, What? And then he walks out the door, and she turns around, and she goes, none of you are going to hurt me. And you see her shoulder straighten up, her head goes up, and said, I dare you to insult me. <laughs> so 
her social her support was he he made her suffer was gonna make her suffer and she said i'm not suffering i'm gonna show him i'm tougher than all of them now where does the healing come in that there is no healing in that so uh, so, you know, you catch those little things. If you're watching eyes and you look at the body actions, even in a movie, how what's acted out. It's one of the great scenes ever in a movie um, that uh, really a lot of pathos. So the feelings are valid. So in your journaling, as you, this is Denny speaking again, you, you continue to putting words to those feelings. You're also putting understanding to them, and they can use that understanding to make wise decisions about your own care. So he kept at what and so what do you need? Uh, you know why? You know we can say why are you still carrying this thing around? Why, why, why? When actually, it's what do you need? And what's happening? What can I do to help? And then to listen. And he he kept, he kind of admonished me for being taking care of everyone else but not taking care of myself. Um. So. And that, that was, that's pretty much that, you know, after that, pastors can keep talking a long time. Uh, yeah, and it's all helpful stuff, but uh, he, explained, he explained things to me. And then he says, does that make sense? I love you. So then I, so I needed to wrestle with the things he gave me. So then, let me just pause for a moment and just say if questions or Perspective, something that makes sense, David? You said mentioned duty, and what Debbie just said, you're taking everybody else, not yourself. And I was going to ask, uh, it doesn't sound like you took it out of other people too much. I don't know. I was near. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's a kind of inner faith that transcends all the things you're going through. Mm-hmm. Well, the sense of duty and loyalty are kind of basic traits I have. And so I, I know people suffer. There's side streaming, things happened. Here and there, that I probably did a lot of apologizing here and there, but as a whole, I leaned into what I needed to do, because God had also provided what I needed, and so I just kind of kept going. It was my my way of dealing with it. So hopefully, people didn't suffer bad. If anybody would suffer, it would have been Allison uh, from what I was going through, uh, because I do internalize a lot, and. Um, it's hard for me to just let it out. I can talk to all of y'all about how I feel, but harder to talk to Allison about just the deeper things because it just feels vulnerable in a way that I don't know where it's going to go sometimes. Um, that's not a strength. I don't know. I think it's manliness, you know. Yeah, that's not a strength. Over-emotion <laughs> is the enemy. Yeah. You want to objectify. Is that what Danny said? Uh, not objectify. How are you going to take care of you? So your emotions don't overwhelm you and everybody else and yeah, I, um, I felt more over the years, as I teach this in my health education class, which I said, you can read the book and figure out all those lesson plans for, you know, this, that, and the other. What I want to do is help you learn how to become a more emotionally healthy person, men or women. And so that being the ability to express one's emotions and to say how one feels in a safe place, even if it's just one person or with a group, is what actually helps us heal. And uh, you look at... If we want to make it mega stage, what went on in Putin's life that he's willing to inflict this stuff on the world now because of whatever he needs? I don't know if the Russian people need what he wants, but I'd see it in this huge thing, this one man and other men and women, but especially men, 
are imposing their wills on the world out of what reason? Is it a good political reason, a government reason? I don't know, but I just look at the man and go, I'd like to know. I, I keep thinking, if I could just get a chance to sit with him, I'd really like him to talk to me and tell me what's going on. I don't think I would get that chance. <laughs> yes? Well, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out the question here, but what do you do with it when answered prayer doesn't happen or something suffering happens? Why do we always say that God had a plan for that to happen? I mean, how do we, just, how do we get out of that spiral? Well, I don't think he said that, uh, but we use it a lot. And I'm going to give you a handout next week that says well, how to deal with unanswered prayer that Hal Conklin shared. Um, but why but, do we go that God, had, that God is in control over everything, so therefore he had a plan for that? Yeah, I got in a big to-do in my health ed class because okay. uh, a young lady had just had an accident, a Westmont student returning, had had an accident up near Santa Maria and had been badly injured, wasn't going to make it back to school. But the girl said that God had a plan for that. She had that accident because while she was in the hospital, a nurse became a Christian. And I said, so I said, so you think that God ran her car off the road and she had an injury so that someone else could become a Christian? She said, yes. I said, so you think God killed my daughter for a good reason? Yeah, probably. Jeez. And I actually, I think I handled that pretty well because I didn't lose it completely. <laughs> but uh, it, it created a discussion. Um, but I, I don't believe in that statement that God has a plan. God uses, can insert himself and use circumstances, but the fact that God, you know, this person dies, but that one doesn't. Does God put his finger out and touch that one person and save them? I don't know. How can we prove that? Uh, it's like my dad said, God helps those who help themselves. Heard it all my life. And one day in the car, I was riding along, I said, Daddy, I'm not sure that's in the Bible. <laughs> Which is a big step for me with my dad. And he said, if I look hard enough, I can find it. <laughs> and that's where, that's where it ended. We didn't talk about it anymore. And he went on with, with uh, believing that. Because he had worked hard, and he felt like if people worked hard, and he's right, if people work hard, things can get better, but not guaranteed, and not always. I have a young man who's in bitter angst and his perfectionism, because yesterday, all his hard work did not come to the fruition he thought it should, because he worked hard, and he deserved and should have gotten what he wanted. And I couldn't even talk to him. He was in misery. And the funny thing is, we... And he's a great guy, and we've done had some wonderful uh, times together. But he just can't; it just overwhelmed him. And so we're debating about, and he's talking to his mom about. It. She's always been this way about the perfectionism. And so I said, "Well, do you want him to go home with you?" And she said, "Well, I'd rather he went home with you." <laughs> and and I'm going, I gotta feel the same way because I don't know what to do with him. And I have a shot at him in this next six months of trying to address that for his own long-term good. But it just, and something as silly as a race, he gets exposed for those things he's just put so much into. And it got, he felt like, I don't know how, if he feels God, but he feels like he should have been rewarded. And so sometimes we want that thing of God had a plan to make us feel better that in our pain, it was not, it was worthwhile. Uh, do, Nikki, yeah. Or, or yeah, and it's almost like what you've already been saying is that God's plan for us is to live as humans to suffer, right? Like, it's not his 
planned a particular suffering, but suffering is a part of life. And sometimes, yeah, theology that isn't good or isn't helpful, we just say those things. But hopefully as a church, we don't we don't want to communicate that. We want to communicate that exactly God is with us in suffering, but not that God planned this and this because it equaled this. Of course, God can redeem suffering, everything else. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, and so and the, the flourishing that you know, God has a plan for you and he wants you to prosper and he wants to give you good things. And so we grasp onto that uh, as though it's a guarantee that there won't be a struggle. And one of the best things in my coaching, I was reading a book called Endure and there's a chapter and we got into the thing of talking about this athlete trying to break two hours in the marathon, this huge thing. And then it says, for all this training and all this technology and the final outcome, if he wants to break the record, he must suffer and I stood up on the beach and went yes <laughs> and so my byword for training now is you're gonna have to suffer and they go no isn't there an easier way I want to run fast but I don't want it to hurt and even after four years they go I just couldn't believe how much it hurt in that race and go what am I teaching I don't I can't communicate anything to you uh, one of the things you were saying too is what you guys were talking it also takes the responsibility away from you if you decide that this was already God's plan. You didn't have any part, part of it. Yeah. And it's often said by people talking to the person who's suffering. Right. Because so, it makes us, separates us a little bit. Right. Okay. I've got one, two, three. Okay. Oh. Will you go, know Sarah? Oh. No. What is it? Joanne, you go. Yeah. Go ahead, Joanne. Go you go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So how do you how do you justify those two? Yeah. Become a Calvinist. <laughs> and my simple way of like it, I, Calvinists have that answer. You, if you want to go with them. Yeah. I'm hearing more. Yeah. Theology. So yes, ma'am. Well, I'm a thing I'll share with you all next week and give you. It's called by sitting Shiva, mm-hmm. uh, sitting with Job's friends did that for a week. And can you imagine sitting quietly for a week, mm-hmm. just sitting with your friend? But then what do they do? You must have done something. <laughs> I've been thinking about this all week. You must have done something. Um, the uplifting things were the care, gifts. Um, I, I, um, when, it, when it got out, the word got out about Alyssa, a, a man who was on the track and field team before I was at Westmont that I knew, but sent a check for $1,000. And they just wrote a note. You'll need this. That's all. So my question was, what did somebody say? 
Yeah, there's not. It's hard sometimes for those of us to come to someone who's suffering. We don't know what to say. Yeah. Yeah, Allison. Um, I think that it was wonderful when somebody didn't try to say something. They gave a hug and, and just told me it was good to see me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just so good to see you. I have heard the best thing you could say is, I'm sorry for your loss. And, and that can oh, be... One of the best that's, things. You know, the best. You know, and I've, I've come more and more to believe that, that it's hard for us in our culture that we just to hold all words. There are no words. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a young lady on my team who suffered through two years of injuries and things not going well and whatever. And then two weeks ago, she had a breakthrough race. And I just went looking for her. I said this and hugged her and she just wept on my shoulder because she just had suffered with not being able to do what she wanted to do. What could I say? Like, great job, what a great race, I'm so proud of you. No, just, and it was, but she knew that. It's just, she just needed to express it because we're not like, she's not going to jump up and down and scream and holler and elevate herself, but it was a lovely moment of just being with. And then, then after I can say I'm proud of you or whatever, but just needed a moment to be there. Yeah, Allison and then Sarah. And I guess one of the things I'd add to that, one of the things that encouraged me was people saying they're praying, and usually emailed, but they say, we're praying for you. And I couldn't pray very well, and my prayers were pretty fruitless, and people pray, and so there'll be times I go, oh, that's why I got through that, because people were constantly praying over us. Even my non-Christian friends, if I don't, they do appreciate when I say I'm praying for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thoughts and prayers is kind of trite in a political sense, but when you do that with a friend, it, that, that's the most significant thing for me, and being hugged and held. We're encouraged to pray without ceasing, and yet it seems like some prayer requests need to die a painful death. Or I mean, it's like, at what point do you give up? You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, there's no change, there's no change, there's no change, there's no change. You can see, for years, I mean, do you, do you think, are, you, are we supposed to abandon some prayer requests? Because... I mean, does the Holy Spirit sort of press by you that that's never going to happen? Give up? Yeah. <laughs> you know, or what? I mean, I, you know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. It's, it's so frustrating. Like, am I, are these words having any meaning at all? Or should I even bother? I mean, not about everything. You know, just certain things that just keep coming back and coming back and coming back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that I get, I have a lot of people in my life, people keep expanding every time I recruit a class and they come in and graduate. 
And uh, so I've started, like, when someone says, and I say I'll pray for them, I stop on the moment and I pray uh-huh. right there. And I lift up to God who recall, remembers and who put, imprints it on his heart, and I let it go. Uh-huh. And I remember to keep praying here and there, but I, if I have to remember all of those, I will start to, I won't be able to do it. So I just, functionally, so I just, I just offer the prayer knowing that God takes it upon himself. But caring for other people is not political, <laughs> hopefully. Well, no, but I know the circumstances of work. Oh, yeah. It's really good, Judy. Um, suffering is inevitable. It'll happen because we're in a fallen world. And when you go through that suffering, you feel like you're in a vacuum. And the prayers are outside the vacuum. Mm-hmm. But God knows, and they actually get in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah, so. You talked about struggling you. Mary tell when you said, okay, I'm going to go for coffee. You can come. <laughs> but there may be people for whom their suffering actually goes beyond breaking just their will and their soul. It breaks their relationship with, mm-hmm. with God as well. Um, and it, it, it didn't happen for you particularly, but I'm wondering if there's a way that we can come alongside those for whom their suffering has isolated them and also isolated them from God by their own desire. Yeah. I mean, just keep being faithful and keep walking with them and don't try to change them or convince them that they're wrong. It's just abiding with, walking with, sitting Shiva is to just be with. There are no words. Um, And that we've got a book or two that we share and that they might read that or not, but it's not trying to change them as much as just support and care about them. It's like holding someone's hand when they're struggling. Uh, just that moment of being touched is huge. I, I'm going to play your song at the end, so I, I, uh, I'll just... Uh, faith I talked about. So transition to healing um, from February 15th, 2011th, and in October 27th. Anyway, say, I look forward to the day... And I quoted this from uh, Hickman's book that Allison found, and she, she lost a son, and she wrote devotionals about that. So I inserted Alyssa's name. I said, I look forward to the day when images of Alyssa's life are no longer associated with the event of her death. Mm-hmm. And that's a long time coming. Um, and so on October 27, 2011, that's, this is five years after Alyssa passed away, and that, this is not the springtime, no, this is after my sabbatical, when I actually went off alone and drove and went out to Colorado, a friend's place, and just stayed by myself for a week, which is unusual for me to be alone. Uh, and I remember the moment when that, I there's a pain right here that went away, that had been there for so long. And I, right then I felt like things changed. And I just wanted to go home at that point. So I started packing up stuff, just... 
hurriedly, I should have stayed a couple more days, but I just like I just want to go home with Allison and Travis. So I wrote in October 27th, God is faithful. I feel his faithfulness in my renewed and energized spirit. I notice his faithfulness when I read what I've written and notes written by others to me. I can see how he has walked with me through a deep time of loss back to a place of hope and expectation. It feels like my life has been restored from emotional pain and the enduring sense of loss. When I look at Alyssa's pictures, I see beauty first with an acknowledgement of her absence, and this feels better. The reward of having had her in my life enriches my thoughts more than the sadness that once pervaded my soul over her death. A desire to move forward in my life has reignited, and I told Denny in the midst of loss and depression that I did not feel I would ever be happy again. Functional, but not ever happy. And he said I would be able to be happy again. And for the first time, I remember, I doubted him. I said, no, you're not right. (laughs) But he had hope and faith in God to restore me, and he was right. And God is faithful. And, it's, uh, and there's, there's things I wrote in 2006 and seven and added to, but the, right on my, above my desk, I had a framed verse, Romans 8, 38 and 39, that I didn't pay attention to all this time until a young lady came in my office, my advisee, who had come to Westmont and gone on a, a trip to the mountains with a group and was met by her dad and sisters when she came out the mountains and says, your mom has died. Now, she knew her mom was sick, and she knew that going could mean it, but that's right. And so my first meeting with her was to go do that, and then I recognized that, this verse, and I actually gave it to her, and uh, she still has that. But Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am convinced that neither life, death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So even in our losses, the heaviest losses, we are not separated from God. I didn't feel separated from God as much as I just don't want to talk about it to you because it hurts too much and it took time to get to that point. So I did scream through all my notes here. Uh, and this morning I was reading... Um, uh, author, uh, essayist, I like uh, David French, who always finishes his weekly column with a song. And so I've been picking up some new things. And this is called He Will Keep You. And I wanted to finish that with you. If we had the video, you'd hear the words, but I think they'll come out pretty clear. I already had it up, and here we go again. <laughs>
basic words. Yeah. So that 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 you know what to say. Um, one of the things I mean, Allison does know me well, and uh, she, she accepts how I am. But one of the things she gave me was a gift. She gave me was um, it's just five songs that she chose that were current at the time, that and gave it to me on a, a CD, and which I played quite a bit, and I called it my crying music because it was only times that the emotions would come out uh, was then by myself and with that music. I don't, that's, I don't know why I'm that way. That's a, this feels like uh, not the best way to be, but it works. And so she gave me that gift of that music that helped me, that expressed for me what I couldn't express for myself. And then the opportunity to cry and to feel the emotions there uh, was helpful. So and there's so there's we and the, I would not give you all those five songs and say these will help. <laughs> they just helped me, and they're still current. So anyway, that's the quick run through about the life and loss, uh, kind of a groundwork from my experience though, thus far. And um, so next week we can talk about the doings of things and maybe some of the questions that come up that I that I feel like I've garnered from all this. Gonna give us a test, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the test is living, <laughs> keeping going. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>